0: Well, good morning everyone. It is a pleasure to be here with you all. If you're visiting for the first time, my name is Brendan, one of the pastors here. If you're our guest, we particularly want to extend our very warmest welcome to you. Well, there's a certain selection of topics uh, as Christians, uh, as Aussies, that are really taboo to talk about. Uh, The first one is religion. The second one is politics, and the third is money. We are deeply protective of what happens with our money, and we don't want anyone to know. More, we're deeply suspicious of anyone who might be asking us to give. You know, we are wary as evangelicals, of the prosperity gospel, of TV evangelists, of scams, and our defenses are up. You know, going, growing up in Australia, attending an Anglican church, as a child, I can remember the, the, the conversations on the way home after a giving series. Why do they keep asking us for money? Look how they spend it. They don't need it. Look what they spend it on. You know, as a pastoral team, we are deeply committed to talking to you about money. Well, why is that? Well, it's not because we need your money or because you're in need of correction. This, if you're visiting us for the first time today, is a very generous church. We do have hopes for the future, There is much gospel work to be done in our community. Don't get me wrong. We want to see a ministry center for us to enjoy. We're talking millions of dollars, an auditorium that's bigger than this. We want to see church plants. We've always longed to be an Antioch church planting out multiple other churches to reach the lost in our city and beyond. But that is not our primary motivation. Our primary motivation for our commitment to talking about money is the intimate connection between your money and your heart. You know, Jesus puts it this way No one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. You cannot, says the Lord Jesus, you cannot serve God and money. Money has a unique ability to capture someone's heart and devotion. I'm going to explore in this message why that is. But the converse is also true. Money has a unique ability to be used as a means of devotion, to increase a person's joy and gladness in Christ. You know, as a pastoral team, we're committed to helping you know and love the Lord Jesus with everything. And the result is that we must, we must teach about this topic, regardless of how uncomfortable as Australians we might feel. The truth is we live in a wealthy country. The median income of Australians uh, this past year was $65,000. As a point of reference, that's 100 times the median income of the poorest country in the world, the Central African Republic, at 650 Aussie dollars a year. We live more in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods, in one of the wealthiest cities, in one of the wealthiest countries, not just in the world, but in the history of the world some estimates put that our income now, the average income, is nearly a hundred times what the average income of the average person living in the history of the world is. If there were ever a people, therefore, at risk of being entangled in money, it's us. It is us right here. And so the challenge is to keep growing in our generosity, to keep growing even to the extent of taking risks with our giving for the cause of Christ. If you have your Bibles there, please open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And I'm going to pray and ask God to help us this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 6. This is the word of God from the mouth of God to us this morning. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you... In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Would you pray with me? Dear God, this morning as we open up your word together. We pray that you would look over the insufficiencies of this pastor and bless your people with a rich feast in your words. Lord, change us by your word. Take your word through the Holy Spirit and make it work in our hearts that we might see and be like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Tim Keller, in his book, Canafeet Gods, tells the story of Andrew Carnegie, whose steel company became the most profitable business in the world in the 19th century. Uh, early in his success, Carnegie had a kind of epiphany, and he produced a ruthless examination of his own heart in a note to self found by his biographer, Joseph Frazier. Carnegie writes the following he says man must have an idol the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry no idol more debasing than the worship of money whatever I engage in I must push inordinately therefore should I be careful to choose the life which will be most elevating in character to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. It's a wonderful piece of personal insight, isn't it, from Carnegie. And yet, sadly, he didn't resign. And yet, sadly, many of his worst fears in fact came to pass. Joseph Fraser writes the following in his biography. Although Carnegie built two thousand and fifty nine libraries, a steel worker, speaking for many, told an interviewer We didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At that time, steel workers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled an inhuman 24-hour shift, and then they got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Listen to this. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. Andrew Carnegie, as a young man, knew he had an idol in his heart. But what he didn't know is how to root it out. He thought that simply retiring and reading would solve it. And the fruit was tragic in its consequence. It would be easy in a message on giving to focus on needs or simply the guilt to motivate change, but that would simply be to misunderstand the root of the problem and repeat the mistake of Carnegie. See, strategies and budgeting and technique, though useful, are ineffectual for true growth. See, the only way to truly grow in generosity is by encountering the generous king who became poor for us to make us rich in him. You know, if you're making notes this morning, uh, this is on our series, Risk is Right, and uh, the title is simply Generosity. And I've got three points for us this morning. Point number one, the right perspective. Point number two, the heart of the problem. And point number three, the joyful way of Christ. But one hope as we encounter the scriptures this morning in our main passage for this morning, and that is this, that we would embrace faith-filled and joyful generosity for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want us to experience faith-filled and joyful generosity as we joyfully follow in the cause of Christ. Well, let's begin with point number one, the right perspective. Just by way of context to our letter, Paul is writing to his child in the faith, his best friend, his beloved friend, Timothy, probably around the 60s AD, between his first imprisonment in Rome and his second imprisonment in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy to explain to him how to faithfully serve God's people. We read the following right at the beginning of our passage in verse 6. It says the following. It says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Godliness and contentment are great gain. It's puzzling to our Sydney ears, isn't it? How? What can you get from godliness? What can you get from contentment? Investment in property or shares, yes, great gain. But godliness and contentment? Paul goes on with the key. Verse 7, 4. Here is the reason why godliness and contentment are great gain. For we start life empty-handed and we end life empty-handed. See, the first adjustment in our perspective is to realize that we won't understand true generosity without an eternal perspective. John Stott, uh, on this passage, says the following. He says, In respect to earthly possessions, our entry and exit are identical. So our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. We brought nothing with us, and we can take nothing away with us. It is a perspective which should influence our economic lifestyle. For possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. And, as Jesus himself commanded us, not to store up for ourselves, that is to accumulate selfishly treasures on earth. I love what he says there. Our life is but a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. And our possessions are just traveling luggage. And just like Moses says in Psalm 90, he says, You return us to the dust, O Lord. Teach us to number our days. We are but dust. Now I was reminded of this, the the quickness with which life seems to pass as I was watching Harry Potter recently with Charlotte. The, The film we were watching was made in 2003. And I realized that was 20 years ago. It seems like not much time at all. And then the thought occurred to me, another 20 years in the future, and I'll be nearly 60. Best to travel light, friends. Best to travel light. Read with me verse 17 at the end of our passage, what, what Paul says. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on what? The uncertainty of riches. Now, to put your hope in riches is to be extremely vulnerable. Riches are fleeting. They are here today and so quickly can disappear. I was reminded of this thinking about our old next-door neighbors when we were living in Waitara, the Barry and Kath Knopp. In the 2011 Christchurch earthquake, they lost everything. He lost his successful business. It could not be recovered. Uh, the insurance agencies went rebuilding and no one was living in that place anymore to even utilize the business if it was rebuilt. So quickly, in a click of the fingers, you can lose absolutely everything. An eternal perspective is helpful, but it's only part of the right perspective. You see, one response to life's bre- brevity is simply YOLO. You know, you only live once, it's to enjoy the party lifestyle. And so there's an additional element of perspective we need to understand Paul's encouragement and the foundation of true generosity. And that is this, that we won't understand true generosity without seeing that we're God's precious servants. Read with me again, verses 13 through to 16 in our passage. It says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who gives, In his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God, who in verse 13, Paul says, gives life to all things. You know, as Dave said this morning, he upholds our heart. Every beat of our heart is because of the sustaining grace of our God. Every breath that we breathe in is a gift of his grace. Verse 15, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He rules above every master and every ruler on earth. And that we are God's precious servants and representatives here has been his plan from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, in these familiar verses it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, the Bible teaches that God is the maker and sustainer of everything in the universe and we are his image bearers. In the ancient world, kings would put their image or their likeness on objects as symbols of their rule and their reign. Statues or murals in their image represented their majesty and their power and their glory and grandeur. Coins stamped with their image represented their wealth and their ownership and their rule and the reach of their empire. And so God made humanity stamped with his image. It means that he owns us and we are his representatives here on earth. All we have, therefore, is not ours. It belongs to him. We are stamped with his image. Our possessions are not our possessions. They are ultimately his for his purposes. And so the question I want us to begin with as we consider this right perspective is this. Is that how you think of your life and all that you have? As belonging completely to God? Do you think of yourself as his representative here on earth, as his servant? You know, this week I stumbled across an article by Michael Schaefer in Politico, and the article is entitled, The Ambassador." his swanky new embassy, and the limits of diplomatic immunity. Schaefer writes, he was a foreign diplomat with powerful friends at home and immunity in Washington. How did he wind up in federal court for cheating his own country? It's the story of former Sri Lankan ambassador to the USA, Jalea Wikramasuria, who pleaded guilty to defrauding his own government recently, lining his pockets with money instead of serving the interests of his nation. There's something absolutely shocking about a public official who is called to represent their nation, who instead represents his or her own interests instead. Yet I put to you there's an incredibly strong parallel with our own lives when we live with the wrong perspective. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so often we think of Christian generosity as giving what we have left over back to God. After we've finished exhausting our own resources and buying the things we want, that is, that our money and resources as primary purpose is to meet our own needs and that friends is to make the mistake of Jailia with Ramessuria as servants as ambassadors we have been resourced for the kingdom everything belongs to the king here's a difficult question I hope you don't mind me pressing you a little bit with this morning church Is that the reality that your giving reflects? That you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus. See, the embassy has a budget, don't get me wrong, but it exists to serve the kingdom's interests, not the ambassadors. And we defraud him when we take what is purpose for the spread of his kingdom and spend it as though it exists to serve our own purposes. And that's the right perspective. That life is a fleeting journey before eternity awaits and that we are servants of the great king of glory. Not just point number one, the right perspective. Point number two, the heart of the problem. Let me ask you a question. I want an honest answer. Not out loud, just in your mind. Hold it in your mind. If I gave you $5,000 right now, what would you spend it on? Now, honest, honest answer. You spend it on a holiday or add it to the savings for future or maybe invest in some shares or clothes or that TV you've always wanted. I think that's an incredibly powerful question because it's a direct window into your heart. Perhaps there's no better indicator of the identity you've assigned yourself than the way you spend your money. You know, how many of us immediately jump to the thoughts of spending that money on ourselves? Even if you say, no, 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 I wouldn't spend it, I'd save it. Put it to you, that's exactly the same. It's all the same. See, saving all the money is just the same as spending it entirely on your need to feel safe, protected, and secure for the future. It's still just spending on you. See, the heart of the problem when it comes to generosity is more than simple discipline or planning and budgeting. It's the desires of our hearts. Read with me verse 9 and 10 again of our passage. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You notice here in our passage the criticism isn't of money itself but the desire to be rich and the love of money. And yet, when, when I say that, when you hear that, often we think of the love of money as like the dragon in The Hobbit. It's like, yes, gold, precious, my preciouses. Or Gollum, you know, with his ring. Or Ebenezer Scrooge. And we tell ourselves, you know what, I don't really love money in the cash. Like, that. that's nice to have. But yeah, I don't love it like that. I'm just not super generous. And things are a little tight at the moment. And so I'm not really given that much. And that is a complete misunderstanding of what the love of money is. See, money is simply a medium of exchange. It's a resource for getting the things you want and sometimes for getting rid of things that you don't want. See, the love of money isn't a love of piles of gold or piles of cash. It's simply a love of getting the things you want. It's a love of what money can do. And I think when we put it this way, I think we can begin to see How all of us, in a way, suffer from the entanglement in the slimy tentacles of greed to various degrees. I think it also makes sense of the stark warnings from Jesus about the dangers of loving money. I mean, have you ever wondered why all of these so serious warnings about loving money, they seem so severe, like a snare in verse 9, plunging people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, root of all kinds of evil, wandering away from the faith. Does that sound completely over the top? Doesn't that sound way too severe? Well, it's not at all. It's not at all. What makes the love of money so destructive is that at its root is really just an inordinate, that is an excessive love of self. Put another way, a love of money is simply the worship of self. It's a deep selfishness. It's a kind of narcissism. And if you find yourself convicted by this description of the love of money, the question becomes, why do we do this? Why do we so deeply desire to use money nearly exclusively on ourselves? I really want us to get this. I really pray the Lord would help us to see this. The reason why The reason why we do this is because we've become disconnected from the generous heart of God. Verse 17 says, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, we love using money as a means of getting what we want and we're willing to sacrifice and scramble to get it because we tell ourselves we need this to be satisfied. We're unwilling to use the money entrusted to us for God's purposes. We're terrified of going without. And we struggle to believe that God will indeed richly provide us with everything good to enjoy. But Paul understood. That's why he could say in verse 8, if we have food and perhaps better covering, that is clothing and shelter, with these we will be content. How can Paul say he'll be satisfied with just the essentials? Well, the answer is he intimately knows the wonderful joy that it is to live as a servant of the Lord Jesus and to enjoy his abundant provision. See, contentment, it's an abiding sense of peace and purpose regardless of circumstance. And for so many of us, we we don't feel that. We feel restless. We, We... We find ourselves looking for something more in life. Looking for the next thing like a promotion or a new investment or a foot in the door of the property market or an exam result or a relationship or a holiday. And we almost intuitively look to money as a means of getting the thing that will satisfy us once and for all. But we forget that God has always been lavish in his provision for his people. You know, when God called Adam and Eve to his service, notice how lavish his provision was. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Notice how lavishly generous he is with the the repetition of every in our passage. Nine times the word every is used. Every living thing, every plant, every tree, every beast, everything that creeps, everything that has breath, every green plant. And so God saw everything he had made and it was good. It's a picture of shalom, things in their right place, peace and wholeness. It's humanity serving as God's representatives on earth, experiencing his abundant provision as they work on his behalf. It's a picture of true godliness and contentment as God had designed. See, why do we struggle to find contentment with a simple lifestyle, just the essentials? Why do we look to money to buy us happiness and joy and peace in life? The answer is because we struggle to trust In the generous provision of the master, we tell ourselves it won't cut it. See, the primary reason as Christians we're called to be joyful in giving is not simply because God wants us to have a good attitude when we give, but because God wants us to be like himself. The most generous being in the world, it's not Bill Gates and it's not Mother Teresa. It's God himself. Hebrews 12.2 puts it this way. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Lord Jesus counted it a joy to be emptied of his riches for us. He counted it a joy to be born into poverty, anonymous. He counted it a joy to be humiliated for us, to be born naked as a baby like one of us leaving behind his limitless honor and glory. He counted it a joy to suffer for us, pains and weaknesses on behalf of every person, betrayal and torture and agony. He counted it a joy to take our place, to endure his father's wrath upon that cross, to take the penalty for our betrayal of God. And he looked on with joy to the moment when he would be raised to conquer and to offer life through repentance and faith in him. Isn't that a beautiful message of the generosity of our God? This is what Carnegie missed. The only way to drive out the love of money is with an even greater love for the one who was willing to impoverish himself for you. In Corinthians two eight nine, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, when you encounter the generous heart of God in Christ, it's transformative. You can completely trust him as your master, because he was willing to bleed for you. You see the limitless riches you have in him, and the confidence, therefore, that there are eternal treasures being stored up for you as you serve him. And as you serve and as you give, you become more invested in his purposes, in his kingdom. And you begin to see both the opportunities and the fruit. And you begin to share his heart for people, to love them. And see the fruit of giving to his purposes. And you begin to want it even more and more. To be generous for his cause. See, the heart of the problem is that we try and buy with money what only Christ can give. Happiness, purpose peace and meaning in life but the generous heart of God perfectly revealed in the Lord Jesus transforms us to use money for the reason it was entrusted to us in the first place and that is for the purposes of building his kingdom well that's point number two the heart of the problem let's end with point number three the joyful way of Christ now I believe it's hard to love the Lord Jesus and live in a consumer culture like ours, and not be affected deeply by this topic. So I want to end our time together with some simple principles to help us grow in the joyful generosity of the Lord. Now, these are not exhaustive, but hopefully helpful as we try and step out in faith to take risks for the cause of Christ in our giving. And the first principle is this. It's simply repentance. You know, Martin Luther in the first of his 95 theses put it this way he said when our lord and master jesus christ said repent he will that the entire life of believers be one of repentance repentance is our life brothers and sisters it's our it's our path it's the it's the secret to much joy in christ it's our constant uh, constant task before us and i imagine that there are some of us here today who feel a conviction that you're not rightly are operating as a manager of God's money, but rather as an owner of God's money. An evaluation of your giving as a proportion, you would see very simply that you give very little, perhaps even in a room this size you give nothing at all, and never in a way that costs you, clearly prioritizing your own lifestyle instead. Like Jalea, Wickram, you've been lining your pockets and neglecting your king's mission. And all of this on the delusion that you thought it would increase your happiness when you've been robbing yourself of joy in Christ. See, repentance isn't just feeling bad. It's not just leaving here feeling a little bit guilty about something, but unchanged. That's not repentance. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. And so the first principle for you is that you need to repent and confess to someone who can walk with you and experience the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first principle, repentance. The second principle I believe to grow in generosity is community. And this is a twofold principle because it operates on two different in two different ways about how it can help us in our Christ like generosity. The first is community is a direction for our giving. Uh, our culture says that giving should be a matter of personal preference, but the Bible says that there's a priority to be given to the local church. Galatians 6, six says, Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so we have a priority to give towards our local church as well. And so the question for reflection uh, for you, if if that is your challenge and you're not giving to the local church, or for all of us in fact, is that if everyone gave with the same degree of sacrifice and faith as me, what sort of church would we be? I believe we want to be a church that is reaching the loss for the gospel, that's funding other church funds. We want to be ever increasingly a generous church, and that should be the direction for our giving to the community. But more than that, it should be an encouragement in giving. You know, why are we so reluctant to share what we have with a trusted friend or member of our gospel community. Perhaps the effect of the pull of money on us is that we're just completely nervous about what they'll say. See, the Lord Jesus forbids public boasting about our giving, but he doesn't forbid asking help from friends to grow. See, a tithe in the Old Testament was a principle. It's kind of, for us in the New Testament, the crutches, uh, J.R. Packer would say, or the training wheels for giving. If you're not used to giving large amounts of sum or a proportion of your giving, giving 10% is a great place to start before you move on to greater levels of giving, which for most of us as wealthy people is what's required. My own experience in showing uh, trusted friends what our budget is and what our giving is is that on one level it's nerve-wracking to do. If you're like, oh my goodness, is this, are they going to think I'm terrible? And then wonderful to receive affirmation that, in fact, what we're doing represents generosity. And I think that can be a wonderful encouragement to you as well, to have people walk with you. And that's principle two, community. The third principle isn't just repentance or community, but one that I think is a wonderful principle that might be new to you, and that is the principle of simplicity. Uh, This idea of living a simple lifestyle in order to maximize our ability to be generous was first introduced to me by John Stott, who lived this his whole life. Uh, He gave all his royalties away from all of his books, uh, millions of dollars, uh, to start the Langham uh, Foundation that supports people to study further studies from Africa at uh, Western uh, Bible colleges. Uh, He lived with simple clothing. His jackets were known to be fraying Uh, and uh, he was known to have been racked uh, in his conscience at the thought of buying a second pair of shoes, uh, thinking that was excessive, or to not take additional portions of food. This was John Stott's lifestyle for the sake of being able to give more generously. Uh, John Stott uh, writes the following. He says, Materialism, a preoccupation with material things, can smother our spiritual life. Jesus told us not to store up treasures on earth and warned us against covetousness. So did the Apostle Paul, urging us instead to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, generosity, and contentment, drawing on his own experience of having learned to be content whatever the circumstance, Philippians 4.11. See, this idea of intentionally adopting a lifestyle to maximize our ability to give is found directly in our passage. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Verse 18, the rich are to do good, to be rich in works, to be generous and ready to share. Uh, John Stott drafted the Lausanne Covenant, which he was the chief architect of, and it says this. Uh, I find it so convicting. He says, Those of us who live in affluent circumstances, that's most of us, must accept our duty to develop a simple lifestyle in order to contribute more generously both to relief and evangelism. You know, if we look at the lives of our peers, those that we journey through life with, And we cannot distinguish a difference in our lifestyle. We live exactly the same. We should begin to suspect that our giving is in fact not representing faithful stewardship of what has been entrusted to us for the cause of the king. As John Stott said, Life on earth is a pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. So it would be wise to travel light. I think that's wonderful advice. Maybe this week or in the coming weeks, you could review your budget through the lens of simplicity and ask yourself the question Is this purchase the best use of God's money for His kingdom? Or should we opt for something simpler and give the money to God? Maybe you could ask a friend to help you review. That's our third principle, simplicity. And our final principle as we close is simply this worship. You know, I love to buy Charlotte flowers. It's not because I have to, that would be odd but it's because I deeply love her. She's one of the kindest and most compassionate people you'll ever meet. See, giving to the cause of Christ is an opportunity to do something that our Lord Jesus loves. But it gets even better. Jesus teaches us that the more we're invested in God's kingdom, the more our hearts will begin to love the things of his kingdom. Jesus says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Can I ask you this morning as we close how's your joy in the Lord Jesus going? Is it just possible that this morning You're lacking in joy. Can I ask you a follow-up question then? How are you going in generous giving? See, there's a wonderful opportunity here to enjoy the grace of greater joy in Christ as you watch the kingdom grow and as you anticipate glory with Christ and all those that he has saved repentance, community, simplicity, and worship. Friends, would we embrace faith-filled and joyful generosity for the cause of Christ? I'm going to pray as we close our service now. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the beautiful grace of knowing and following our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his wonderful example of generosity towards us, Lord God. But most of all, we thank you that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, he has changed our hearts to be allied now to him, that we are his ambassadors, his servants on earth. Lord God, would we have that perspective in all we do, to see him as the king, our king, and to use not our things, but his things for his purposes. And we pray all of this in the name of our matchless Savior. Amen.